everybody, and welcome to a new edition of Talking About Cars. I'm Randy Cardoon. Everybody has a car story. Mike Joy went from a racetrack driving cars to today being at racetracks all over the country in the broadcast booth for NASCAR and getting up close and personal with classic cars at the Barrett-Jackson auctions on Velocity and Discovery TV. When did he find out he was into cars? Let's just say it began at a pretty young age. My dad liked cars. My granddad liked cars. Uh, my granddad courted my grandmother on the back of an Indian motorcycle in 1908 or 9. And he had a succession of, a really neat succession of automobiles. Someday I'm going to have to put them in a book. And my grandmother wanted a car too. And she had her own car, and this would have been about 1931. So, of course, my dad became a car person. He studied uh, aeronautics, went to work as a design engineer for Lockheed. Um, married my mom, they moved back east, but he always he always had interesting cars. Wasn't that much of a race fan, went, went to a couple races, but uh, when I was nine, he bought a Mercedes 190 SL, was, was an estate sale, and so that was his fun car. Plus he had a two-door Willis wagon with four-wheel drive, uh, certainly one of the first SUVs, and we'd, we'd take that off-roading and take it on, you know, fishing trips and stuff like that. So. When I was 15 and a half, he went through his second childhood, my father did, bought a brand new 65 GTO, and I thought that was fantastic. So somewhere in between the 190SL, seeing the movie Grand Prix in Cinerama when it opened, and my dad buying that GTO, I, I was hooked. I was a car guy. Now, when you got your first car, was that a hand-me-down? Did you go and get something yourself? What was your first car? A high school friend of mine and I went car looking like we always did uh, we ended up at the mercury dealer next next to my hometown uh, in central connecticut north of hartford and they had uh, this is 1966 they had a 60 impala convertible uh, horizon blue white top 283 automatic and looked at it really liked it never thought another thing of it and about a week later I came home from school and it was in the driveway. Uh, the salesman who had taken down my information, I forgot I even gave it to him, and then called my dad, you know your son really likes this car and it's a good deal and so on and so forth, and my dad bought it. And that was it. What a deal. I mean, was he going to buy the car for you anyway or did this just an extra benefit? No, no, I had no idea this was going to happen. None, none whatsoever. It was a, it was a complete surprise. Uh, drove that car for about a year did some meaningful upgrades to it. I put a Radio Shack reverb in it for the AM radio. Of course. Yeah. Uh, Baby Moon hubcaps with the body color wheels looked pretty sharp. Blackened out the smaller bars in the grill. Took the valve covers off and painted them. You know, real hot rod stuff. But it was still, uh, you know, 283 two-barrel automatic. But it was a lot of fun. And, of course, that was the one you had to begin with. Now, I would imagine you'd had a lot of cars uh, through the years. Was there ever one you kind of look back now, now and say, man, I wish I never got rid of that one? I tell all my friends, you know, we sold all those cars for a reason, usually a very good reason. Um, there are a couple of Ferraris that I sold way, way before they became cars with two commas in the price tag uh, that, yeah, I'd kind of like to have back. But probably the best overall car I had was a 71 Z28 Camaro, uh, LT1, four-speed, 373 Posi rear, and uh, Mulsanne blue, white stripes, blue interior. 
You sound like a guy who works on the Barrett Jackson auctions. I'm just listening to you describe it. <laughs> and uh, I saw that car on a used car lot in Springfield, Mass. in 1973. Had to have it. Had no idea how I could buy it. Uh, found a, a very sympathetic banker, uh, sympathetic to my part-time job, and bought that car for about $2,400. And it was, it was fantastic. Put tons of miles on it, uh, autocrossed it, road raced it, just had a ball. I'm always interested in how you got to your point where you suddenly started doing this radio TV stuff, plus, you know, eventually landing here at uh, Velocity and, and Fox doing NASCAR. Actually, even before I bought that Camaro, in college, I was broadcasting football and baseball, uh, football and basketball for, it was the dawn of FM college radio. So it was pretty free form and we had pretty much free reign, but all of us who were doing live sports and live news were trying to be like the great commentators of the day. So it was, it was a great, uh, you know, it was a great education, probably better for me than the one I got from my classwork. I was at a local short track one day. We were autocrossing using the quarter mile track on Sunday. Uh, the Modifieds had raced their Saturday night. And they said, hey, in between your runs, why don't you go up in the public address booth and tell the people what's going on? Because people would wander in from the adjacent amusement park, hear the tire squeal, see cars going around, wonder what's all this about. So I did, and, and we started to draw a pretty good sized crowd well, here comes the park owner, and he's not happy because people are sitting there watching cars instead of out in the park spending money. And his PR guy said, no, wait a minute, I think we got something here. And they tried to hire me as the stock car announcer. Wow. And I turned him down flat. I said, I've seen those cars. They're jalopies with straight axle front ends. They're very unsophisticated. You know, I'm into Trans Am and Can Am, and I, nah, I don't think so. Would you come to next Saturday night's race and just watch it and, and see if you have any interest? Sure. Gave me a pair of tickets, we came, and here these cars on a little fifth mile track come, come thundering around on the last lap of the A Concy, and this one driver bounces off one car, bounces off the wall, edges him out for the last place in the feature event, and the 10,000 fans there go wild, and I go, wow, I gotta be part of this. And that was it, that's how it started. That's a great story, especially because who knew that that was gonna happen? I mean, for all you knew, that could be the change in your life as far as what you wanted to do. What did you want to do before? I wanted to be the next Dan Gurney uh, or Mark Donahue, but I didn't have the resources or the money to find out if I had any talent driving. So it would be, you know, I, I did run a couple of IMSA races in 1973, but it would be, oh, another decade and a half before I ever was able to carve out enough time to really go road racing. What's in your garage right now? Um, I have a Porsche that'll do zero to 60 in under three seconds. Uh, the, the usual collection of, of big sedans and SUVs and, and, and pickup trucks. Um, there's a 71 El Camino. There are two MG Midgets, one stock, one highly modified, two MGBs, similarly. Uh, there's a Datsun 240Z, one of the first series cars of 1969-70. Um, a couple other pieces here and there. I, I talked to Steve Yante earlier, and it was a, he told me this great story, really, the fact that you guys work up there, you're doing your thing, but every so often you see a car you really want, and you kind of have an opportunity to bid, if I'm not mistaken. I have a bitter pass. Uh, I have bought cars at Barrett-Jackson. We may later this year go and consign one and try to sell one at Barrett-Jackson. So, um, yeah, I'm not immune to the lure of the cars. Usually I find there are people willing to pay more than I am 
But yeah, there are a couple of cars I've been committed to and, and that I've bid on. And kind of my deal with the TV network is they would prefer that I not talk on the air about a car that I'm going to bid on. So I don't go up there saying, oh boy, this, you know, this, uh, the paint's awful and this doesn't, really, and then raise my hand, you know, so that would, that would not be very good. No, but take me through that because you're, you're sitting there. Do you know the car's coming up in advance? I assume you do. Oh, yeah. and, and you're sitting there doing your thing. And then all of a sudden, how does, what's the next step? Well, first, only a neophyte decides to bid on a car when they see it roll up on the block. You know, usually you've been out looking at the cars in the tents, talking to the consigners, doing your research on the history of these cars, what's right, what's wrong, what's fair, what's foul, what needs to be improved, what you can live with. And then you reasonably set a bid range, which you promise not to exceed and usually do. So, no, I'll let our producers know I'm bidding on this car. Don't, don't go to me. And my wife will sit at home going, he's not talking, he's not talking, he must be bidding. Oh, no, no, t no, tell me he's not bidding. And then if I jump in in the commentary, she knows that, that the car has passed me and somebody else is going to pay more for it. And, and then, then she's very happy again. She likes cars, but not to the extent of what our garage is full of. I was going to say, how many do you have? Uh, in case she hears this, several. Several? Yeah, several. Okay. Well, okay. We, we won't expand on that. Have you ever, you and Magnante or anybody else there, have you guys ever liked the same car or wanted to bid on the same car? You know, we have very different, it seems we have very different tastes. I don't ever recall a situation here competing with one of my colleagues for a car. Uh, Ray Evernham and I, both growing up in the NASCAR modified world, we do like a lot of the same cars. Uh, but he veers off and tends towards Plymouths, where I tend to kind of kind of go the other way. All right, we were talking about the uh, Smokey and the Bandit car that's up for auction here. Uh, it is billed as uh, one of the five Pontiacs that was given to the studios, four of which were used, destroyed. This was left over as a promotion car. Uh, what's your thought on that? I think it's great. I think it's wonderful that uh, this car has been in Burt Reynolds' possession. It was used to help promote his school for aspiring uh, actors down in uh, Jupiter, Florida. And Burt's going to be here to promote the car. All of that is terrific. Uh, we've had two cross the block already, and they did record numbers. Now, what grinds me is they are advertised as Bandit Special Edition Trans Ams. There is no such thing. In 1975, based on the success of the John Player Special livery on Lotus Formula One cars, black with the gold pinstriping and lettering, in 75, Chevy came out with the Cosworth Vega for two years with a very similar paint scheme. Ford, in Europe, sold a JPS Capri II in the authentic paint scheme in black or white with all the gold. In the US, that car was called the Capri S. And the interior was black and tan. The exterior was black with gold or white with gold. And I bought one new. Couldn't wait to get my hands on one. And it was a fantastic car. So along comes Pontiac, and in their myriad color schemes for the Trans Am, they want to get in on this. So they come up with a black and gold Trans Am with all the dual pinstripes all over the place. There's enough striping tape on, on one of those things to sink a Pinto, you know, but it was a, a, with the, the gold honeycomb wheels was a very, very attractive scheme. It did not come after the movie. And I know this firsthand because uh, I worked at Stafford Motor Speedway in Connecticut. And when that, when that car first came out, it was a special edition, 
But when it first came out, my boss, Ed Urington, said we have to have one of those for the pace car. And Scranton Pontiac in Vernon, Connecticut, arranged for us to get one. And Brian Sines lettered it all up for Stafford Motor Speedway. And so we had that car in use before the movie debuted. And when the movie premiered in Connecticut, we had that pace car right out front on display the whole weekend at the, at the biggest uh, theater, the Multiplex, nearest the Speedway, and did kip, ticket giveaways and, and, and all sorts of things. So the car came before the movie. The movie made the car famous, and that's why everybody knows it today as the Bandit Trans Am. Well, and it's like, you know, there was no such thing as the Ford Torino Starsky and Hutch edition either. I mean, Ford never sold that paint job or anything else. No, but, you know, like a lot of things that happen in the movies that are fictional, they become fact and they become iconic. I don't think the Starsky and Hutch paint scheme is very attractive, but a lot of people with Torinos do and they and they put it on there. Um, the General Lee was a car concocted for a TV series. And now, due to backlash, there are people removing the stars and bars from the top of their general lease um, to and including Bubba Watson, who bought yeah. one here at auction. Well, let me, let me get your opinion on that, because there are a lot of people that are saying, hey, that's the way the car was, and do you change that? Is that a smart thing to do if you're a collector? I, I'm torn, because you're right. That's how the car was. That's how it was on TV. And at that time... The Confederate stars and bars were seen simply as a symbol of Southern pride and a remembrance of all of those who fought for states' rights and what they believed in at the time of the Civil War. Sadly, the stars and bars have taken on a different meaning, and it's, it's darker, it's sinister, and it's something that a lot of people, including friends of mine in the very deep South, that are part of NASCAR and used to fly that flag at the races now want no part of. So uh, maybe this is just a phase, but until it passes, until the Confederate flag is no longer seen as a sign of white supremacy, maybe it's best that they go off the car. Maybe we can put them back on later. I have to ask you this because we don't know at this point what the Bandit's going to do or the Bandit Firebird's going to do. So I remember the Nash Bridges car, the uh, Cuda that came across and, and the frenzy that started and Don got up there and said, hey, that's my butt on the seat. That was, you know, shaped the seat. I got to take you to the Batmobile because that seems to be when you talk about events that went on Barrett-Jackson and the frenzy and the fact that this thing kept going more and more expensive. What do you remember about that and what was it like being on the main stage just being part of this and watching it happen? To be right there and to speak with George Barris immediately afterward was I mean I, I can't recall my exact words to sum it all up but it was something like kings presidents, rock stars Batmobile and it, it really was, it was a frenzy. You'd have thought the Rolling Stones just walked on stage. I mean, when they played the music from the TV show, and George gets up there, and it's, it's just, you know, that's Americana. That's, there's just no way you could orchestrate something like that beyond what it actually was, because what it was was so big and so huge. The only thing missing was Adam West and Burt Ward, you know, who played Batman and Robin. That's all that was missing. Uh, from the sale of the Batmobile, which which had a very curious ending. You know, two guys get to that kind of money and then do a coin flip over who gets the car. But nobody cared because the Batmobile was there on stage. Barris was on stage. It was a huge, huge television event. Now, I think 
the Burt Reynolds Trans Am could approach that, not in dollars, not in dollars, but in attention, enthusiasm, and excitement. If you remember, when Smokey and the Bandit debuted, it was at the same time as Star Wars. Smokey and the Bandit outgrossed Star Wars. So it was the biggest movie in the United States at the time. The people who fondly remember going to that movie on opening weekend are now of an age and with the disposable income to buy these cars. And I think that's why we're, we're seeing a big run-up in the prices. We saw one on Wednesday sell for $100,000, a later version, very, very low miles. We saw another one do a big number. Um, I don't know what this car will do, but a quarter million dollars with Burt Reynolds in attendance to sign the car for the new owner would not surprise me. No. It's back to the Batmobile a second. NASCAR, I got to get your comp thoughts on NASCAR coming up, and uh, are you looking forward to doing that on Fox? Of course. You know, that's... Um, it's a labor of love, and every season is new, and every season is different. A lot of fellas in NASCAR who are also car collectors, because everybody in, in the sport, you know, grew up tinkering with cars. So there are a lot of collectors, some with one or two cars, some with a lot of cars. And uh, so the place, place will be rocking with racing royalty this weekend. That's cool. You, you, are, you are the, I don't want to say the maitre d', but you certainly are a guy that comments about the, the, the craziest party, I think, once a year in Arizona. It's a great time. You know, every Saturday evening uh, down at the pavilions is a great car show. It is the longest running weekly cruise in in America. There's usually 500 or more cars in a parking lot uh, at the Pavilion Shopping Center right off the 101 between McDonald's and the Home Depot. And it's also well organized. There's a central aisle in the middle. All the American cars are on one side, separated by decade. All of the uh, import cars and the motorcycles are on the other side, you know, and the modern cars. But everybody's happy. It's a big, it's a big fun car show. Bear Jackson is great, but in Phoenix or probably wherever you're listening to this in your hometown, you can find something similar, whether it's cars and coffee or a cruise night, something like it. At the 2006 Barrett-Jackson auction in Scottsdale, the Smokey and the Bandit promo car, that went on the block and sold for a half million dollars, not including the buyers and sellers fees. Mike was in a pretty good mood, so I asked if he would join me in some Bandit trivia. How many Dukes of Hazards TV stars were in Smokey and the Bandit? Zero, one, or three? One. Any idea who? No. It's a guess. Okay. It's actually three. Yeah, according to IMDb, John Schneider, Sonny Schroyer, who played Enos, and Ben Jones was in it. Number two, how long did it take for Jerry Reed to sit down and write Eastbound and Down once Hal Needham said, I want you to do this? Was it two weeks, two days, two hours? Two hours. You are correct. Or pretty close. It says a couple of hours. He just sat down and said, I want it. That's right. Jerry Reed was just a, a tremendous talent. You know, and, and a car guy and a guy who knew how to have fun. And Hal Needham, who was a great friend because he owned a NASCAR team. You know, everything Needham did, if it's not fun, we're not doing it. Number three, so you're one for two. Who was originally hired to play the bandit? It wasn't Burt Reynolds. Was it Elvis Presley, Jerry Reed, Sally Field? Jerry Reed. Yeah, Jerry Reed, originally. But you know that, or are you guessing? Yeah, no, I, I'm pretty sure I know that. But he wasn't really, they wanted somebody, they want a bigger box office. And Bert was available, and Bert and Hal were friends, and kaboom. You are correct, sir. Two for three. That's very good. All right, number four. 
How many movies has Burt Reynolds made with Sally Field? One, four, or six? Four. Correct. Smokey and the Bandit, one and two. Hooper. And the end. And, uh, Hooper was really Hal Needham's life story. Uh, Hal Needham was a tremendous stuntman, maybe the best in Hollywood, before becoming a director and producer. Absolutely. So now you're three of four. Jackie Gleason modeled Buford T. Justice after who? A sheriff or once pulled him over, Hal Needham or Burt Reynolds' dad? My first guess would have been Joe Higgins, who played the sheriff in the Dodge commercials. Okay. I that. Uh, but what if I said Burt Reynolds' dad? You are correct. Hey. Hey, very good. You are correct, sir. Uh, that's, uh, that's four for five. Four for five. You're already ahead of Chris. All right. What engine did that Trans Am, the one that did the bridge stunt, looked great on film, crashed and burned? Well, it didn't burn, but it, it no longer exists. What kind of engine did the Trans Am that did that bridge leap have? Was it an Olds, a Chevy, or a Pontiac? All those Trans Ams at that time had 400 cubic inch Pontiac engines, did they not? But was this one changed? I, I don't think they spent the money to put a different engine in it, did they? And, no, it was a Chevy. They put a they put a NASCAR Chevy in it or something uh, like that. So well, now that makes sense because Hal Needham had a NASCAR team. They had a lot of engines. Okay, all right, I'll go with that one. Barrett Jackson and NASCAR on Fox announcer Mike Joy. Don't forget to see him when Velocity and Discovery broadcast the next Barrett Jackson show in the Northeast up in Connecticut. That'll be June 23rd through the 25th. Here on Talking About Cars, we've been very fortunate to have some great conversations with some of the top customizers in the business. Gene Winfield joined us in Talking About Cars 54 and the late, great George Barris we honored with Talking About Cars 44 and his original interview that aired with us on Talking About Cars 20. You know, if you haven't heard them yet, I invite you to check them all out. While in Scottsdale talking with Mike Joy, I caught up with Celebrity Customs' John D. Agostino, a Bay Area native. He's a huge fan of the 40s, 50s, and 60s American luxury cars and has several tribute Cadillacs that emulate the style of the late Elvis Presley. John and I were simulcasting an interview with Generation Auto TV's YouTube page looking at a 59 Cadillac he calls the Elvis 3. Well, actually, I built the first one in 2007, and I've built three of these. I've had a team of people actually building three. The first one actually was shown all around the world. Ended up going to Barrett-Jackson in 2007. It ended up selling in France, because when I was in France, I went to view the car. It was in a museum with all Cadillacs, and it looked beautiful. Let's talk about the one right next to us here. Now, where did you find this? How did this come about? Well, first off, uh, four years ago, I was doing a guest appearance in Dorn in Austria, Dornbin. I met the people that actually owned this car. Didn't even know they owned it at the time. I was, uh, I was actually signing autographs next to four chopped Mercuries. One of the chopped Mercuries was owned by the Italico brothers and Doc Stocina, the builder of the car. Uh, we, we formed a relationship. Six months later, I spent 10 days in Italy. We talked about opening a shop called Celebrity Customs Italy. Worked out great. We started that, and this is the first car to roll out of the shop, the Elvis 3 car. They've always loved the Elvis cars I built. They wanted to build something. It says, how are we going to make it different? I said, there won't be a problem. It won't be a problem. We're, we're going to change the style of the top. We're going to go do it. a T-top. We're going to go into the Swarovski crystals. We're going to go into completely different colors. Let's take a look for those of you watching on Generation Auto TV. 
Look at the interior on this. I mean, the upholstery is something like we've never seen. Oh, it's it's all special stamped. All the pattern is all special. It's done it's done in a in a in a grain that is totally different than you see on a regular leather. And you see how it's all pearlized. It's all done in pearl tones. Uh, it's it's just gorgeous. Uh, the carpeting is, is all color coordinating with the outside of the car. Whole car is done in white pearls and and real light mint, uh, actually uh, uh, pearls, uh, gold pearls. So white again, pearls. if you don't see it and you're listening on the podcast, it's a 1959 Cadillac. Talk about. It's not a T-top per se, but talk about that, uh, what you've done. Well, this is what I told uh, the Celebrity Customer Italy team. we got to go into a top that's mildly chopped. Instead of chopped like my other two, let's just go a two-inch chop instead of a three-and-a-half or four. So, And I want to completely fabricate the back of the car, the whole top. Get rid of the rear window, the stock rear window. Have a, a small rear window made, all new sheet metal. But the main thing of this is the T-top itself. It's not like if you look at a Firebird, how the T-tops are done. This actually swoops way back into the back here. It's come straight, comes into a 45. It's absolutely fa fantastic. I learned this from the first Elvis car. That was a three position top. Full top, half top, no top. This is Actually, a top here, T-top, that's very unique. Now, the hard top on this, it doesn't look like, and I might be wrong on this, but I, I, I don't think this is an original Cadillac top, is it? No, not at all. Completely fabricated. The Cadillac top, the, the C-pillar there, it's got about a two-inch piece of stainless. It's got a window that wraps around. Totally different. This top is 100% fabricated. Wow. Okay, give me the real truth. Was this Elvis's car? No, this, <laughs> this is basic. Elvis, Elvis owned many 59 Cadillacs, but this is a tribute to Elvis. This is something that if Elvis was living today and he saw any of the cars, the first, the second, or the third, he would have bought all three of them, guaranteed. He'd be your best friend and best customer probably. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Because <laughs> you have put together some incredible stuff in this. And, and what do you have under the hood? Under the hood is a, is a stock, uh, actually, Cadillac engine, completely gone through, built in Italy, all fabricated in Italy, and all chromed, detailed. If you look at it close, it's got a, a history on it. It talks about one of Elvis's records, one of his last records he did, tells a story, and it's all engraved right in, right in the front of the car. Does it go without saying that John D'Agostino is an Elvis fan? Oh, without a doubt. It's funny because in 2007, when I had the first Elvis, a friend of mine, that guy, the wife passed away. She was a huge Elvis collector. They went through the last 10 years, from 1967 to 77, every concert, they were, they were actually groupies with him. I bought her whole collection. I got 45 boxes full of letters, anything that came with Elvis. I don't care if it's magazines, newspapers, teddy bears, I don't care what it is, I have it. I even have stuff from when he was in the Army, 1957, small Polaroids, probably a couple dozen, signed by him and his lieutenant. So I got some special stuff and I've only went through four or five boxes. What do you do? I mean, okay, this may sound like a silly question. I mean, I, I collect stuff from time to time, not Elvis stuff, but do you display them? What do you do with it? You know, I have one room that I display some, but you know what? I would probably need a 10,000 square foot museum. I was going to say. Yeah, I can. That must be yeah. some heck of yeah. a room. So once in a while, I, I'll go through half a box and it, I, I go crazy. When I look at some of this stuff, I mean, from Ted Hodge to, to the, his manager, to his friends, I have letters, actual letters, Priscilla. When they, were, they were at a wedding in Sacramento area, wedding in Los Angeles. These people followed him like family. John, I, right next to it, right behind over here, is uh, another 
Cadillac, and this is an incredible car. Talk a little bit about that. Oh, that's that's probably out of, well, I've done 100 plus cars. I've probably done a half a dozen 40s cars. By far, this is my best 40s car I built. The second best is probably the one that sold last year, the Gable Packard, that sold for 495,000. That's uh, pretty close to this car, but I just like this car a little bit more. Probably because, first off, it's ultra rare. There's very few of them. That's a 1940 Cadillac 62 series. Probably the only customized one in existence. But the way the top has been completely fabricated, all the side windows, all the chrome channeling, all fabricated. The paint, the house of color, custom mixed ice pearl, second to none. It draws people. That car has won so many awards around the world. It's been to Finland, it's been to Sweden, it's been to Norway, Peterson Museum on display beyond i mean it's just it's a car that the fenders have been widened completely fabricated running boards the headlights have been lowered uh the taillights are, are are built into the into the guards onto the chrome guards uh there's a lot a lot of changes on that car but it's very traditional it's something that if a person wants the epitome of a 40s custom you're not going to beat sophia how do you decide the thought process on how you decide okay it's time to sell it or auction it off. Well, you know what? I'm always building. I'm I'm two cars ahead. I have one that's in the in the in the paint booth now. It's supposed to be done in two weeks. Been working on it for four years. Give me a hint. What is it? 1958 Packard two-seater open roadster. Unbelievable. Wow. Million dollar plus car. When when it comes out, it's going to give you just like the dream cars of yesteryear. It's going to be unbelievable. The color. The style, I can't wait. In the next four or five days, we should have a lot of color on it, and I'm excited to go back home to check it out. How do you pick the cars that you're going to work on? I mean, obviously, we see a lot of Cadillacs, a lot of Packards, a lot of upper-class vehicles from that era. Well, it's, it's something. I like luxury cars. I started with them back about 20 years ago. Actually, it was in 1989 when I was building a Lincoln, and that's when Cadzilla came out. And we actually showed together at the Grand National Roaster Show in, in Oakland at the time. We were head-to-head -to -head together, Lincoln against Cadillac. And that was my first luxury car. So I've been doing them for several years, probably built 25 or 30 of them. I've had some good teams working with me. Oz's Customs out of Orville, California. He's done at least a dozen of my cars. He's done fabulous work for me when it comes to coach-built body work, custom paint. He's probably one of my favorite. I've had Lucky Seven out of Antioch, Gene Winfield, uh, Daryl Hollenbeck, all, all big names, all Northern California big names. I've worked with all of them, and, and I try to treat everybody fair, and they've all done very, very good work for me. John D'Agostino is with us here on uh, Generation Auto TV, and one of the things we do on Generation Auto TV is we talk about the cars. On talking about cars, we tend to talk about the people, and I always wonder where did it start for you when you first got into it? How young were you when you went, huh, cars, I kind of like that. When I was nine years old, my dad took me to the Grand National Show, actually in, uh, in Oakland, California. And uh, ever since then, I used to see cars in Pittsburgh, California. That was a hotbed for custom cars. The best in Northern California. Cars built by, by Winfield, by Barris, by everything started there. The Italian guys, Mafatanos, Zoki, which is still around today, uh, Albertino, big construction uh, person. All the Italian boys, probably at least half a dozen, used to drive by my dad's house at various times with these beautiful creations built by the legendary Barrises and Winfields and Balons. When I saw that, 
started going to the shows. Immediately, I knew when I was 16, I was not, I was going to have a custom car, and I did. What was your first car? It was a mildly customized 1956 Chevy, Royal Triton Purple, Pearl White, lowered. Uh, 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 chrome wheels. Was it that way when you bought it or did it start stock and John started doing that thing you do? It was completely stock. It was actually a ivy green and white, the old green and white. Yeah. Nice low mile car. Bought it from the person across the street from my dad's house. Kept it a few years. Started with another car. Then in the early 70s I started building new cars and old cars. So basically I was doing, I was doing two cars a year and uh, like I said I probably have done over a over hundred cars. You've had so many cars. Is there any car you thought of, gosh, I wish I didn't get rid of that. I wish I still had it. You know what? I, you know, if I can, I, I, would, I wouldn't sell any of them. I would have a warehouse full of 100 plus cars. I would have a great collection. And, and you know what? Some of these cars, if they come available, I'm probably going to end up buying them back. Really? Some of these cars, like the Midnight Sensation, that just is on the market now. And what happened a couple weeks ago, uh, the fellow passed away over in uh, Jupiter, Florida. Uh, they came to me about wanting to buy the car. I have a lot of stuff going. So my, my, uh, one of my relatives that went with me, I drove with me in the car when he was 13 years old, he wanted the car so bad. He said, Johnny, this has been my life dream is to own the Midnight Sensation 51 Merc. So instead of me buying it, I let him buy it. So that car is going to be on the show circuit next year. Beautiful, beautiful chop Mercury. How many cars do you have right now in your garage? Uh, actually, I only have four in the garage, but I have a couple at the Peterson Museum. I have two being built. I have Rolls Royces outside my house. My dad has a car I, I actually bought on Car Chasers, bought it a year ago, drove it to my dad's house, put it in the garage, haven't touched it since. Which one is this? 68 CAD convertible, red with the white top. Bought it right on the Car Chasers. So I, I, I have probably a dozen cars, and I, I try to do one a year, sometimes two, but I'm always, I, I have more cars than I could do. Okay. So you've done all these cars. What car is it that's still out there that you want to do? What's on your bucket list, number one? Well, like I said, I have this 58 Packard. I can't wait to get it finished because it's been in the works for four to five years. Right behind that, I have a half-done 41 Cadillac uh, Carson Top that I started two years ago. But we're trying to finish the Packard first, then we're going to go back to the 41. So 2017 will be that Cadillac. And after that, I don't know yet, but you know what? It's uh, once I finish the 58 Packard, that's when I put my two cars on my list. The one that's being built, which will be the 41 CAD, then I'll get another car behind that. So I'm always two behind. Custom car designer, John D'Agostino. Hey, if you like what we're doing and you're listening on iTunes, number one, subscribe. There's a button right there. All you have to do is push it. It's free and you'll automatically get notified when a new show uploads. Then rate us and write a review. If you're listening on SoundCloud, like us and follow us and tell your car pals and fellow car club members about all the great guests and cool stories we have on our Talking About Cars podcast. Also, check out our videos with our partners at Generation Auto. Head over to YouTube, look up Generation Auto. That's Generation Auto, no space between the two words. Until next week, I'm Randy Cardoon. Join me as we we have some fun talking about cars.